Welcome to America's First Warriors, stories of today's airmen and guardians. In celebration of Native American Heritage Month, this five-episode series explores the stories of members of the Air and Space Force through candid conversations centering around their individual backgrounds and culture. By gaining a better understanding of the members of our total force, we become a more rich and ready team. I'm your host, Chief Master Sergeant Mark Legvold, Command Chief of the 133rd Airlift Wing, Minnesota Air National Guard. Joining me today on America's First Warriors is Tech Sergeant Sloan LaFountain. Sergeant LaFountain is an instructor in airman leadership uh, stationed at Davis Monthan Air Force Base in Arizona. Prior to teaching and developing our airmen, she was a public health technician and is enrolled with the Turtle Mountain Tribe of the Chippewa Nation. Welcome, Sloan. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. There you go. First thing off the bat, you're calling me sir. That's okay. I'm I'm much older. That's fine. Hey, you've been uh, you've been in for about eleven years now, stationed at three different bases. Uh, how do you stay connected to your culture and heritage as such a mobile person? It's really difficult. Um, I found, especially in the beginning, to be really difficult to keep my roots where they're at. Something that I've tried to do routinely is continue to smudge. Um, that includes um, taking sage or cedar and um, just praying and connecting with creator. And um, so that's one way. I try to also continue to educate myself on our history and staying involved. And um, recently, I guess over the last year, I've tried to um, become more what's the word, crafty, if you will, in um, creating regalia. So that includes like making ribbon skirts. I made my first jingle dress, which is um, a form of dance that we use for ceremony. Um, attempted to make my son his first pair of moccasins and they're still um, unfinished. But trying to um, continue doing activities that connect me to my roots. You uh, mentioned to me earlier that you are a uh, craft starter, but not necessarily a craft finisher. That sounds like your your best way of, of staying connected, though. Yes, definitely. Last week, actually, when my son was sick, I made a ribbon skirt that I had made a mistake on, which is another, which is not a bad thing at all. I think um, they say, our ancestors say, in bead work and in anything you make, um, we should never strive for perfection. So if there's a mistake, it's not a bad thing at all. Anyhow, I created this ribbon skirt, and the ribbons are supposed to line up, and I did it, like, diagonal, and I did it flip-flop it, so the the ribbons are going one way on the front side and the opposite way on the other on the back side, but I um, I posted it on my Snapchat, and I was like, well, I made a huge mistake on this one, but does anybody want it anyways? Um, so gifting that to somebody is also just another way for me to stay connected. That's wonderful. Can you explain the significance of the ribbon skirt and, and what makes that a, a unique part of your heritage? Um, so I actually learned about it about a year ago when I started making them. Um, they were, they're used to symbolize, uh, based off my understanding, the woman's um, uh, reproductive organs. So they're to protect, will protect us in that manner. Um, and actually the history of like where our ribbons came from and things like that was through trading with um, the 
different cultures. It wouldn't always be with other Native Americans. So things that we had that we could trade for, they provided us um, like a lot of where our jewelry comes from, comes from trading. So in a lot of old pictures, you will see um, our ancestors very uh, decorated with jewelry and things like that. So it, the ribbon skirt essentially is um, protecting the, the women's reproductive organs. So there's symbolism to that. And is that specific to the Chippewa Nation or uh, do other Native American nations, other Native nations uh, use the ribbon skirt in that same manner? I'm not familiar if um, other nations or tribes use the ribbon skirt for the same sense, but I know that many, if not, well, all tribes that I know of, um, the ladies wear ribbon skirts. Um, so it's not anything specific to Turtle Mountain Chippewa. Understood. Okay. So you are um, engaged in raising two boys, six and 19 months old. Uh, that makes you a pretty busy mom. What what are you hoping to pass down to your next generation when it comes to your cultural heritage? And how are you doing that? It's difficult, especially, um, you know, to be an enrolled member of a tribe, you have to, well, at least for my tribe, you have to have at least a quarter um, of your blood quantum has to be Native American. And I am just under half. So having kids with non-Native Americans, non-enrolled Native Americans, um, they did not, they're not able to be enrolled, but they do, have, they're considered descendants, which is um, just another whole different topic to get onto. But so letting them know, first of all, that they are Native Americans is one thing, and it's really hard to explain to a six-year-old um, what that means when he's not surrounded by his culture. Um, so I grew up pretty much surrounded by that culture, so it was easy for me to understand. So whenever I'm playing um, like some powwow music and things like that, he really enjoys it. And I talk about how it's healing music and things like that. So I think um, just playing powwow music, explaining what a ribbon skirt is. And there's also ribbon shirts. I'm unfamiliar with like what those mean for men. Uh, so he's like the different dances. I try to show him the male dancers and like the different options there are. And also being in the military, it's hard to, um, you know, go to powwows because powwows happen, they start sometimes on Thursdays and Fridays and then they end late, very late on Sundays. Mm -hmm. So being able to take leave, um, not that taking leave is ever an issue, but, you know, I don't want to take my kids out of school and things like that. Um, just trying to educate the best I can. And especially as we come upon the Thanksgiving holiday and, you know, we recently celebrated Indigenous Peoples Day, explaining to him what those what those holidays are. That's, uh, it does sound like a struggle. And right now you are in, uh, you're in Tucson, Arizona, which is far from the Chippewa Nation's geographical center. So, yeah. Do you find a uh, uh, friends and and uh, colleagues in the air or space force that you can identify with and maybe do some of those best practices or or teach them together? Um. So, 
gosh, I want to say it was maybe three or four years ago, I found a powwow here actually in Tucson. Um, my son was Cordell, the six-year-old. He was only a year and a half old maybe at the time, so he didn't wasn't really engaged. Um, and it wasn't exactly how – it wasn't a similar powwow that I'm used to. Um, so I guess, no, I, it's hard to find like – it's hard to find other – Native Americans um, in my around here. I mean, if you look at the um, the data of the number of you know Air Force members or um, DoD members in general who uh, identify as Native Americans, um, there's not many of us. So, I mean, I'm sure if I went out to the civilian population, I could certainly find others in um, the community who. I could um, find fellowship with and, you know, do those best practices. I'm sure that that definitely would help, but there is a struggle there, especially when in the military, especially we move around a lot. And, uh, you know, so in a place for two to three to four years, and then you move again and you're finding a whole new circle of, of uh, friends and, uh, family members and, and tribal members, it's, I'm sure that is a struggle. Yes. I will say, um, when I was stationed in Turkey, I was, um, I think I was on base somewhere, and I saw this lady, and she had really long hair, and it was beautiful. I was like, oh, my gosh, I wonder if she's Native American. And I have been, like, I've been asked multiple times, what are you? Because um, I look like I could be multiple different things. I look like I can... Like, I'm not exactly, people don't guess right away that I'm Native American. So I asked her, and I said, hey, um, are you Native American by chance? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, oh, my gosh, me too. I've never found somebody since joining that is also Native American. She was a spouse of an um, Air Force member. And, of course, we automatically had that immediate connection, um, and we hit it off from there. We've been friends ever since. And, of course, the military has, of course, split us up from there, but we maintain contact. Certainly that you bring up a real interesting uh, a question that I have through your story, Sloan, and that is somebody like me, Caucasian guy, um, and I have an interest in, in people's stories and, and their perspectives in life. What's the best way for someone like me to approach someone like you and not be disrespectful by asking about their, uh, their heritage or their culture? Can you coach I think me? That is, um, I, I wish I could say I could. I think it's very subjective in how other people, you know, in communication, we all have, um, I guess, soft spots, if you will, or areas that we find offensive that we don't mean. Like, so I have no problem when somebody coming up to me and be like, oh, you look, uh, you don't look like an easily identifiable person to tell where you come from. Can you tell me what are you? And some people take that very offensive. Um, yes, of I don't. Course. I'm happy to share. Um, happy to share what I am. So I guess when I try to ask, especially like Hispanic people, you can never tell are they um, what the, where they're where they originate from. Mm -hmm. Are they Dominican? Are they Puerto Rican? Are they something else? Um, so I was asked, oh, where do you come from? And then they day and I was like oh where's your family from and I just slowly try to like um build that rapport from there so that it's not like oh what are you um where are you from 
where's your family from and things like that it has always been that that awkward walking up to somebody and saying what are you is just so <laughs> it just feels <laughs> like this is not the right way of approaching somebody with an open heart with a good question uh, just right. have a good I sense of curiosity right definitely i think people mean well in what they do and i think some people just uh, it's hard for them to we all grew up differently so yeah absolutely so so speaking of growing up coal strip montana uh you lived on the reservation early in life and then moved to coal strip that that's a pretty rural setting i mean you're you're out there oh, in the yeah. sticks then you Definitely. run off and join the Air Force. So, first question: How did you how did you choose the Air Force? Talk, tell us about your path. But then that adjustment between you know living in a real rural setting, and then you've you've been to all kinds of different places, including uh, uh, living in in Anchorage, Alaska, and Tucson, Montana. Uh, hey, that or Tucson, Arizona. Jeez. You know, those are some pretty uh, urban centers. Tell us about that adjustment. But first, Sloan, if you don't mind, tell us your Air Force story. How did you come to join the, the Air Force? All right. So I think it's a common misconception that Native Americans get to go to college for free. That is not true. Um, so anyways, going through school, high school, middle school, I already did. I did really well. I excelled. I got good grades for the most part, except for chemistry. I don't know, I just couldn't get it. I still got a C, I mean, whatever. But I did really well in school. I never had any issues. So I thought I would go off to college and do my best. However, comma, going through school, I always held at least two to three jobs at a time on top of maintaining my grades mm -hmm. because I was because I was used to having my own funds because my parents also said, if you want to have these $100 jeans, you're going to go buy them yourself. I'm not buying you $100 jeans. So I said, okay, I'll get them myself. I maintained my two to three jobs, and I always had a lot of money for a high schooler. Sure. So I was like, dang, I'm going to go to college. It wasn't until my going into my senior year, I was like, dang, I'm going to go to college and be a broke person because, I mean, I'm not going to obviously get a full ride because I wasn't focused on sports and I wasn't doing the best I could in my academics, so there was mm -hmm. no way I was going to get a full ride. Um so I said, okay, what's my next option? I'm really kind of tired of school, too. So I told my mom, mom, I got to talk to you. And my mom also said, you're going to college, you're going to the military. Um, that's your only option. You're not staying at my house. Either way, you're so going. Yes, you're getting yep. out of my house. Yep. Yep. Uh, so I told her one day, uh, I got to talk to you. I'm not going to college. I think I'm going to join the military. And in my family, nobody I know has ever um, volunteered for the military. My grandfather joined the army and my uncle joined the army, but um, they were drafted. Okay. Um, so it was completely walking into the unknown. And since I'd only known that about the army, I went to the army, the recruiter's office, and you know, he showed me his cool binder of all the cool toys he has and all the cool places he's been. And I was like, okay, that's cool. But I wasn't. I don't know if I want to do that. So then I thought about like other people who have joined the military who haven't joined the army and <clears throat> somebody I'd worked with, he had joined the Air Force and I was like, you know what, let me check it out. So I went and talked to the Air Force recruiter, Tech Sergeant Carpenter at the time, and um, 
yeah, and from there, you know, I had to lose weight. I had to um, learn how to do push-ups because I didn't do push-ups mm. for despite the um, sports I played. Um, but yes, I think my biggest hurdle to joining the Air Force was losing, having to lose weight, um, and then of course getting a job. I was in the debt pro- program for a long time, the delayed entry program, mm-hmm. because I w- didn't want just any job. I wanted a medical job. And I remember getting a call from like October, I think of 2010, well after I had graduated and it said, how does leaving in January sound? I was like, oh my gosh, sounds incredible. So I left on January 11, 2011 to basic training. Getting out of Montana in January is a good idea. Oh yes, straight down I'm, to San Antonio, Texas. <laughs> absolutely, I'm I'm speaking to you from Minnesota, so it's the same thing. It's like, uh, what yes. can I do to get out of this cold? So away you go. You go to the hot spot in San Antonio, and and boom, you become an, an airman and go through uh, public health school, right? Yes. So leaving the sticks and going, being um introduced to more city life, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I had been exposed a little bit throughout my life. Um, my uncle had taken me places. My parents had brought me a couple places. Um, and like through school, I had gone, been on planes before. So it wasn't like a huge culture shock. Um, but of course I was a young 18 year old with not a lot of life experience. And I thought I knew it all. I thought I knew how to manage my money. Um, but I did not. In fact, I was still all about buying hundred dollar pairs of jeans and things like that. So that the Air, was the Air Force gives opening. us free clothes, Sloan. Yes. Um, <laughs> gives you free clothes. I still have to utilize my clothing ah, allowance that's on right. an annual basis. That to, is a difference um, you know, between the guard. Yep. Yes. Um, yeah. Going to Turkey, I would say it was um, as a 19-year-old because by the time I had graduated public health technician um, school, I was 19. And that was a culture shock. You talk about um, being in America your whole life and then going to a different country across yes. the globe. Um, it was interesting. And I look back now and I was like, I was so naive to what was going on around me. Um, I didn't bat an eye. Like the things I saw, I was like, oh, okay, that just must, must be normal. Yeah. Uh, but I wish I would have taken advantage more of the opportunities that were, were there. What did uh, that experience of, of going through that culture shock of, of being in America your whole life and then moving to a place that has a completely different culture, what did that teach you about how important it is to appreciate your own culture? Um, see, that's where I feel like I was so young and naive. Um, I, didn't, I didn't think anything of it. I look back now and I'm like, I, it's eye-opening to be like to think about years ago when my my elders were removed from their their home and put in a third what was completely unknown to them. Um, that's where I found the gratification um, of being in America, being an American citizen. Um, just still having all my rights, being able to wear what I want to wear and things like that. Yeah, you um, you moved from from Turkey then and, and headed on up to Alaska, right? Yeah. 
and that was an opportunity for you to uh, you do you were forced into a position where you had to develop a sense of resiliency beyond what most people are exposed to during your time up there. Do you mind sharing that story about uh, what happened to you up there in Alaska? Yes, absolutely. Um, I was um, living a grand life. I think I was 21 years old. So that means I'm coming up on, gosh, what the ninth year anniversary of this experience. Mm. Um, I was a young 21-year-old enjoying my life. I was out on a Saturday night um, with some friends, and we were at a at a bar. Um, like, I don't know, most 21-year-olds, I suppose, on a Saturday night. But I was, when I got here, it was the first time I had ever been there. And I was like, ah, oh, this is not my isn't the vibes if we're talking 2022 language <laughs> wasn't feeling the vibes so I told my friends hey guys I'm gonna head out they really liked that spot they had been there multiple times so I said hey guys I'm gonna head out um I don't want to ruin your guys' fun so I texted one of my friends and asked if he could pick me up he said perfect I'll be there in a little bit and he said I'm only a couple minutes away I said cool I'll go wait outside I was outside for maybe five minutes or so and of course, completely dark outside. We're talking November in Alaska, so but the light was becoming minimal. Um, and I started hearing fireworks. Oh, that's weird. It was fireworks. Well, whatever, you know. Maybe somebody's celebrating something. And before something clicked in my mind, I had realized that's not fireworks, those are gunshots. So I'm on my way to, of course, get down on the ground because I don't know where they're coming from. Um, and before I knew it, I had this extreme pain hit my body and I was on the ground. I screamed and I was like, I think I just got shot. I had crawled underneath the car because I still hurt. I was still hearing gunshots going off. And when it stopped, I called my mom because um, whenever I was an eighth grader and my oldest sister was a senior at the time, she got a phone call in the middle of the night. Um, that my sister had passed away in a car accident and having her gone through that trauma already from receiving that phone call I wanted her to know that when she got the phone call that I had been shot that it would be for me and that I was okay I thought I was gonna I mean I thought I was okay um, and obviously I am um, so I wanted her to get that phone call for me uh, from there of course um, I got somebody called the ambulance and I got to of course the hospital and uh, I was also happy to say that I'd only had one Bud Light that night, so I was not intoxicated or anything like that. So getting my treatment was, it was easy to explain how I felt and things like that. I got great um, care at the hospital. And then I had also found out that two other people had gotten shot there. One had gotten shot in the head and one got grazed on the shoulder. Um, they asked, do you want to talk to that person? I'm like, I oh, I don't even know who it was. Um, so anyways, I continued to heal. Um, mind you, at this time, I couldn't feel my legs. Um, like I couldn't move any of my lower extremities. Um, so we didn't know what the what that meant for me. Um, I did, of course, MRIs and things like that and found that it had, you know, damaged some area of my hip and things like that. Well, a few days go by, and I'm getting, like, the feelings back in my legs. 
in my legs and my hip area, and I'm able to get up and walk, which was an incredible feeling. Um, like it just it was really um, like a breath of like you. I sighed of like relief, yeah. like I didn't want to be, want, didn't want that to be me. Um, but that was that was the easy part, I guess, healing physically. Um, mm-hmm. Because from that, I had a lot of a mental trauma from um i didn't know who shot i didn't know um what that purpose was um and i thought they like i mean i didn't know anybody i'm not related to gangs and things like that so um i remember one day after an appointment for you know um cleaning up the area and things like that making sure it was healing fine i was in the hospital for like a week and a half i think so not terribly long not long at all um I'm sitting in my car and I start crying. I'm like, oh my gosh, I, now I look back, I was having probably an anxiety or panic attack. Like, somebody's going to come find me, they're going to kill me. Uh, I had to seek mental health help for that. Um, so I navigated that, navigated going through um, therapy. I was um, ended up being um, diagnosed with PTSD. Um, and at this time, I think. Uh, a lot of people still thought that PTSD was only related to those who were in combat. Um, yeah. I think in the last few years, we've really come a long way in what PTSD is. And from getting being diagnosed with PTSD, I was able to be a part of the Air Force Wounded Warrior Program. And with that program, I was able to um, build relationships with people who had also been through traumatic events, whether yeah. I'm actually one one of the ladies that it was in that program, she had a very similar situation than me and hearing her story, it just, um, I could relate to her and I wasn't able to relate to anybody else, like in at my work center, my like my mental health therapist, of course, they did what they, what their job required then, but I didn't feel like nobody understood how I felt. And when she shared her story, it was like, you understand, I understand how you felt. Um, and that really helped my my mental health healing journey tremendously. Sloan, you mentioned that same, this is. Oh, I'm sorry. Please. No, go ahead. You you mentioned at the that same this time, is nine years on from from that incident. Are you still? Is that still part of the recovery process? Oh, certainly. Yeah. Um, I think there's different things that will trigger. Um, in the back of my mind, trigger. Um, those thoughts and things like that. A few weeks ago, I started reading this book on Never Split the Difference. It's a book on negotiations and things like that. And I'd read like the first chapter of it. And that evening um, or that night, I had a a nightmare of being shot again. Um, I think it's still something, you know, um, I I still work through those moments. Yeah. We, um, Thank you for sharing that story uh, and and continuing to work on that. It just shows that strength and resilience doesn't, it takes work. Uh, it's not just one event that you get through and, and then you're done. It, it takes good hard work, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And the, the person who shot the three of us um, essentially was never held accountable. Um, the um, Alaska or Anchorage District Attorney's Office decided that they did not have sufficient evidence in identifying the shooter. Mm. So that never went to trial. Um, 
and I had always had the desire to get out of public health as a career field and cross-train. So I had applied for cross-training um, for multiple different jobs, and um, I was told no because of the um, diagnosis that came from the gunshot wound. Um, so I applied for paralegal. I applied for, well, for paralegal, they said, no, we don't want um, the events that you've occurred have to trigger you in your, if you cross train, I was like, okay. Um, and oh, by the way, you're ineligible for security forces and like four other jobs. I was like, dang, they just told me not only no to this job, but no to the five others. So I gave that up for a little while, and then like a year or two later, an uh, opportunity came up for me to cross-train and to become a boom operator, and I was like super excited about this. I'd gone through the flight physical stuff, and they said, okay, we'll have to try and submit a waiver for you because of your mental health history. I said, okay, that's no problem. I feel great. Um, and, well, that turned out to be the same thing as we don't want some in-flight emergency to cause you to be triggered and cause you to go then die here, panic attack. And I was like, wow, okay. So that went down to, um, so I said, how, how much control does this person have over my life now? The things that, the, the pain that they cause isn't just the pain that my body feels, but also um, has stunted my career progression and things like that. Um, so that took a long look in the mirror to figure out, you know, to take control of the situation. Um, locus of control is something I teach a lot about now in the classroom is do you let things happen to you or do you make things happen? So that's when part of resilience. Yeah. Do you feel like you've, you've landed in this, uh, you're, you're in a leadership position. You're, you're instructing our, our newer or developing supervisors and you get to share your story of, of strength with them. Are you making better supervisors for the future? That is, um, I, I hope so. Um, I do share my story with my students. We talk a lot about warrior ethos in the beginning of each um, class. And I think every airman has a story. And that's what I think is important for them as new supervisors to understand is um, there's a reason somebody's acting the way they are. And what I want for them to figure out is why are they acting that way? Um, because oftentimes we'll just put a label on somebody for them acting the way they are. So I really encourage them to know their Irma story, ask them what happened to you um, so that they can better, better lead them. Right wholeheartedly agree and and sharing airman stories is uh really what we're what we're accomplishing here and i i so i'm so glad that you're sharing yours earlier i i asked you a question about how to approach uh or how to ask a question of someone that you're interested in finding their heritage and you talked about a soft spot that they may have and uh one of the stories that you had shared with me earlier is you know i asked you from the past you admire and you shared with me the story of a man named George Gillette and Mr. Gillette signed away uh, he signed away a lot of acres of land for the Garrison Dam up in western North Dakota and 900 Native American families were forced to move and the story is centered that you shared with me is centered around the photograph of that moment in time when he signed it away. And this man is literally uh, surrounded by people um, at the signing ceremony and he's weeping openly. 
And that brings up that idea of, of generational trauma. And you, you talk a lot about PTSD. Can you give a little inkling into what the, the generational trauma of, of some of our Native American communities is and how that, how that is carried and what better looks like? Okay, so yes, that story, and I'm um, not even a descendant of George Lett and that um, that reservation, but it just speaks so loudly to um, like what who Native Americans are and what they what they went through. Um, I think the generation generational trauma that I um, am most um, familiar with is. Um, how it relates to uh, the Indian boarding schools um, and when, what that did to how I was raised, how my mother was raised, and things like that. Um, my grandparents on both sides, well, my grandmother on my mom's side and my grandparents on my dad's side both went to boarding school. And they each had a little bit of a different experience. Uh, my grandmother on my mom's side had the worst, and that resulted in my my grandma making um, my grandmother and the way that she raised my mom, and of course my grandparents, my aunts and uncles. Um, so that led to how my mom learned to raise children. Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess we we raise our children how we thought we were supposed to be raised. Um, you know, there were things that my, my grandma may have done to my mom that thought, let's see, how do I phrase this? We lead, we learn from what we see, right? And my mom learned to raise kids how my grandmother raised them. And whether that was right or wrong, we don't, it's hard to say in the moment. Um, but there's just a lot of room for improvement. Um, the trauma my grandma went through in boarding school led to how she raised my mom and my grandparents. I guess I'm talking in a circle here. Um, what I'm trying to say is uh, there's a lot of trauma from the Indian boarding schools. And I think a lot of times people try to say, well, that happened so many years ago. Get over it. Well, if it's not get over it, um, you know, it's different now, so you don't have to worry about it. Well, I do have to worry about it because um, the way I was raised is the way I was raised, and the reason I was raised that way is because my grandma, who went to boarding school, was treated the way she was. Sloan, you articulated so. No, actually, you know, the holistic story of who you are and the work that it takes to become resilient. It's not a matter of just that happened years ago and just get over it. It it takes work to get over get through and become stronger because of trauma, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're a perfect example of that and, and doing it well. Sloan LaFontaine, uh, thanks for joining me on America's First Warriors. Uh, you are a fascinating story and so glad that you are uh, influencing future generations and uh, maintaining your sense of culture and heritage through that process. Thanks so much for joining me today. Absolutely. Thank you much, so much, Chief, for having me. It's really a pleasure. Absolutely. 
Joining me now is the award-winning Master Sergeant Frances Dupree. Sergeant Dupree is stationed at Peterson Space Force Base in Colorado. She's an active member of the Indigenous Nations Equality Team and is a passionate advocate for Native American issues. Welcome. Hello. Glad to be here. Glad to have you with me. Um, first off, uh, can you share your tribal affiliation with us? Yes. Um, well, I wanted to greet everybody in my in my Lakota language. Uh, so I greet you all with a warm heartfelt handshake. My name is Francis Dupree. I am in the United States Air Force, and I come from the Rosebud and Northern Idaho tribes. Francis, where did you learn to speak the language? Well, very recently I learned sort of on my own to expand upon that. However, um, I grew up with uh, my grandmother and my, my great-grandmother, my unchis, um, speaking the language in, in their home. And, and I can tell us about your grandma, especially you mentioned that your grandma was your primary influence. Your your great grandmother never spoke English to you. Is that correct? That's correct. But your grandma was the one that really gave you uh, a great deal of influence and and respect in your culture and heritage. How did she pass that along to you? Thanks for asking. Um, I kind of wrote on this too in in my seventieth ISR wing uh, diversity inclusion letter. Um, so. To answer your question, I, growing up, I was exposed to my Lakota language, mainly around, like you said, my paternal grandmother, Louise Igotel Quitzer, um, or Louise uh, Wambli Sinte, uh, and Mato Ohanko, uh, and my great-grandmother, Rebecca Quickbear. Um, both my grandfather and great-grandmother, or sorry, grandfather on my dad's side had journeyed on into the spirit world before I was born. Um, but at one point in my childhood, I lived with both of my unchis and uh, my grandmother's, which was a, a, a really great time because I would hear them speak to each other daily, only in our Lakota language. Um, my unchi Rebecca, she only spoke Lakota. And, um, but very often my unchi Louise, um, she's my paternal grandmother, so my, my, my father's mother, um, would take me with her to church each Sunday and then we would sing songs in Lakota. And I was very young, but, um, reading and singing in that language, I felt like came really natural to me. Um, so, and when I reflect back upon that now, the I feel like the, the language has always been a part of who I am. And I remember singing in church and I look, looking up at my grandmother, mouthing the sounds of the words. And I, I wrote this in the newsletter too, but I felt like that was my language class and she was my teacher. Um, and I cherish those moments spent with both of them very, very much. Um, even though at the time I was very young, uh, understanding the impact of boarding schools, and I and and I didn't understand at the time why I did not speak Lakota as fluently as them. Um, however, now, um, you know, I'm trying to expand upon that, and uh, knowing that boarding school was a, a, a negative impact on that on on them, and you know, us to this day, including my children, it's kind of like generational trauma. 
And, um, but, but I know that that time in her life, it was hard on her. And that's one of the reasons why I, I definitely tried to expose that more to my children and to myself. Tell me how you're, you've got four kids, 19 all the way down to age two. How are you uh, actively passing on the language and culture to your kids? So today, for example, um, I went and I spoke to my daughter's class, um, my fourth, her fourth grade class, and I shared the language with all the students there, and they were very excited to learn. Um, and with my, my specifically my fourth grader, um, she knows how to count to 10 in the language, and then we just use it here and there at home. So like we say, you know, you know, go ask your ate, which means dad, and, and mother is ina. And um, so we just use it, you know, very friendly, like throughout the day, you know, it's just to get our children fluent and not fluent, but um, going towards fluent in the language. Mm-hmm. And then, so your 19-year-old or your older kids, uh, two, you've got two that are in that 19, 18-year-old. Year, what part of your culture have you seen them actively pick up and are they just as passionate as you are or are they a little bit more reserved so i do have a 19 year old his name is chris john dupree jr and then my 18 year old daughter sophia dupree um, and then my, my nine-year-old and then i have an almost two-year-old uh, but my 19 year old um, back when he was very first a teenager he went to sundance with his grandfather um, my husband's father, and Sundance is a ceremony that um, specifically for all culture, our Lakota culture, we we um, take part in that, usually around like the summertime frame, and um, that's, I could take up like a lot of your airtime, but like that's a really um, sacred time for my for my son to, to do with his, um, his grandfather. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad you're taking the time to, to share this. Uh, telling the stories of our, our the families of our Native American people, uh, it's a key part of keeping the spirit alive and making sure we don't forget the voices of, of the past and the lessons. You talked a little bit about generational trauma and your grandmother and your great-grandmother and the boarding schools and how difficult it is and what an active process it is for families um, and communities to move through. I don't want to say move beyond or move past, but move through that idea of generational trauma. Uh, Can you share how that goes, how that journey is going for you and your family, if you don't mind? Absolutely. I like that you said that, like not move through it, right? We'll, we'll never forget, right? So I think like it's equivalent to how we will never forget the events that occurred on 9-11. So our, you know, indigenous community will never forget, you know, what happened to our ancestors. Um, so initially I used to think, and I guess I was walking in two worlds, essentially. I'm sure you may have heard that term before. Um, but lately, and as I get, as I've gotten older, I realize the more that you are yourself, you know, the more affected that you can be, especially being um, in, in leadership positions and just in general in life, not just in the military, but, you know, in, in your life. I feel like being your authentic self is what, what definitely helps get through um, day-to-day interaction and 
specifically for for being in the military, I think it it is uh, best to be your authentic self and lead with your authentic self because that definitely helps an effective work environment. And then um, that and that way also, in, I guess on a daily you can celebrate diversity, right, and inclusion and and equality and accessibility just on the daily. You know, if we didn't have these Heritage Month events like just people being their authentic self no matter what race what gender etc like that that's um i think that's the right way to be thank you i i uh native american heritage month is november and it's just one month and um i really appreciate you know how celebrating diversity is something we should be doing every day um recognizing it is one thing uh but actually recognizing the value that it brings to our culture in the military, uh, that's a whole another point. Um, what about serving in the military, Francis, as a Native American, have you found to be rewarding? And have there been challenges along the way as well? So I, there has, has been some challenges for me. Um, and I, I like to think those that have not been, have those that do go through adversity, you know, it makes them a well-rounded, well-rounded, more experienced person. Um, but I do believe that there are issues facing Native Americans in the military um, that are similar to other military members, right? But there's there's also barriers and challenges for minorities in general and Native Americans included in that that have been brought to attention with the Department of the Air Force, who I'm sure our listeners have, have heard of the disparity reviews. Um, some of those challenges uh, our Indigenous Nations Equality Team, which is one of the DASPOGs, the Department of Air Force Barrier Analysis Working Groups, are um, working towards are working towards removing barriers, um, possibly changing policy. Uh, one of those policies that we're working on is for male hair length um, changes to be similar to the female hair length policy, and then even for, take, to take it a step further than that, because it's all about inclusiveness, right? Is to possibly make it a gender neutral policy for hair length. So that way it encompasses um, the other DAF blogs out there. Like we have LIT, which is the LGBTQ plus initiative team. Uh, we have uh, HEAT, which is the Hispanics in, uh, initiative team. And then uh, PAC-T, which is the Pacific Islander Asian American community team. Um, and, and plenty of others too, right? So which we want to be inclusive. Um, but our first step is to, is that male hair policy uh, for indigenous males. And we, since this podcast, we know of five that have an approved religious accommodation uh, for indigenous males in the, in the Air Force to grow their hair out long, which is super awesome. We're all excited about that. And then we also have other lines of efforts too. I. I'm so glad that you brought up the policy change, especially on hair length. And for a follically impaired Caucasian male, Francis, would you mind <laughs> explaining why, glad you picked up on that, could you explain why the male's hair length is an important cultural issue for our Native American men? Oh my gosh, yes. Okay. I'm glad that you asked that. So hair, hair length for some Indigenous uh, cultures, specifically for, I can speak for my Lakota tribe, um, Lakota, Nakota, and Dakota, um, we consider our hair sacred, but it's much more than that. It's uh, 
it's a connection to our ancestors. It's a connection to our community, our indigenous communities. Um, and it's, it's who we are as a people. And when we cut our hair, those that practice our traditional ways, um, we cut our hair only for certain reasons. We cut them when we're in mourning for somebody. Um, uh, we cut them for, you know, um, other reasons as well. And it's not just for styling purposes. Um, as a matter of fact, I've, I've had a handful of um, male students um, and youth ask me, because they know I'm in the Air Force, but they ask, they tell me that they want to join the military, but they don't want to cut their hair. Um, and so I know that's a, that's a huge deal. And whenever we briefed, I briefed it to the Secretary of the Air Force last November in the Pentagon, um, that uh, there are five times at the at a greater rate that Native American and Alaska Natives serve in the United States Armed Forces um, at a five five times higher rate than any other ethnicity uh, per capita. And I, when I looked at the Secretary of the Air Force, the Honorable Frank Kendall, and I was like, sir, you can you imagine that number um, if our male hair length policy were to change? And so, I mean, that's just, just tells you like that, that story that I told and um, the, the handful of youth that were asking me about it and the five religious accommodation approvals, like that just tells you that I hope that we're stepping in the right direction, part of the Department of the Air Force. I, I do as well, and, and you talk about being an inclusive organization, and the military, while not perfect, has, has kind of, we push policy uh, ahead of the way society will push policy, and even though a degree of sameness and uniformity is something that's always been a call in the, in the military, what I've found to be incredibly refreshing um, moving into the past two decades of my service uh, has been that, yes, uniformity is important. However, individuality uh, is also something that makes us a more battle-effective organization. If people go to war and they feel comfortable in their own skin and uh, comfortable with the people to their left and right, we're a more effective fighting force. Do you believe that operationally policy changes like this will make us more effective? Definitely. Um, we, we've all heard of the diverse of experience, diverse in thought and, and inclusiveness and about like diversity is, is um, you know, being asked to come to join the table and then in, our inclusion is being asked to join the table and then, you know, sorry, I forget that analogy, but um, so everyone has a story to tell. Everyone has diversity of experience and including everyone, every race, gender, age, uh, and more and getting to know the people that you work with on the daily. Um, I, I really do believe that it'll, it'll help build connection and it'll help build that effective workplace and then ultimately impacting mission. Because um, for many years, I'm sure there was like group think and one thought on mission. And then one, when you have that diversity of experience, so I want to bring up the code talkers. So we, you know, how we use their, everybody should know this by now in American history that we use their language, right? During, during the wars and had it not been for that, you know, who knows if we would have, you know, won the war, right? So, and then going a step further, 
I mean, there's, we, we want to build an innovative, what, 2035, right, for our Department of the Air Force. We want to build these airmen for 2035, and that's starting with the diversity. It, it really is. And bringing more, being a more inclusive culture and bringing all these different experiences, because everyone has a story to tell. Everyone has a different, different mindset, different perspective on things. And once, you know, we bring them into the Air Force and the Space Force and other branches, I mean, I can't imagine what a 2035 or further down the road the, um, the DOD would be. It's exciting to think about what the future is, is going to be, especially with some of the, the, to us, they're big changes now. And I'm hoping that in 10 years, those are just small changes that opened up a floodgate of, of individuals that bring that creativity and passion for service to the country uh, into the Air and Space Force. But you've mentioned, Francis, that you're very passionate about mentoring and coaching. And um, you mentioned the small part of the Air and Space Force that is uh, of Native American background. So obviously, you're not mentoring and coaching solely in the in the Native American culture. You're working in the regular workforce where um, you're, you have a very diverse group of people. When it comes to mentoring and coaching the airmen that you work with and the guardians that work with, you work with as a senior NCO, what are the lessons that you work to instill in the people you lead that come from your background? The people that I lead that come from my background? the lessons that you gain from your background, how do you instill those lessons into the folks that you lead? Oh, um, first I, I, in addition to answering that, I wanted to also state that our core values in the military, and I, I believe the other core values across the other branches um, are very similar to my Lakota values. There's, there's seven values and um, we received these from the White Buffalo Catwoman and they are praying, respect, caring and compassion, honesty and truth, generosity and caring, humil humility, and then wisdom. And then of course we have our core values, right? Um, excellence in all yes. we do. Yeah, so, and I really feel like these are mirrored across each other. And I think just as humans in general, if we you know abide by these, these values that we hold so dearly, and in the military, that we can do no wrong. Um, so that's that's what I, that's what I definitely try to instill. So, 22 years in January, that'll be that's that'll be how long I've been in the mil in the Air Force, and it just goes by super fast. But um, throughout my time, uh, currently, I definitely share all the experience that I that I go through. Um, particularly in, you know, in coaching and in mentoring. Um, just very recently, as part of Code Athena, and I briefed the My Vector Mentoring tool, and I shared an experience of why tools like that are important. And um, if, you, if you haven't seen it yet, but it's a My Vectoring mentorship tool where you can link or connect with others across the DAF, and um, you can, um, differentiate between different characteristics or um, demographics of an individual. So you can choose if they're, you know, Native American, if they have, you know, a, a doctorate or if they've supervised somebody or if they have a family or if they have, 
um, or if they're part of, part of ESMP, the Exceptional Family Member Program, like like all those things. And just so as long as the individual is okay with, you know, having that be available to others, you can find people either like you or not like you. And um, again, going back to the diversity of experience, I think it's important to have a diversity of mentors and a diversity of mentees. But at the same time, specifically for Native Americans, um, I think that's a good way also to connect, especially if they want to take part in our, um, you know, all the things that we're doing for the Native Americans and Alaska Natives in the military. And side note too, you don't have to be Native American or Alaska Native to be part of in it. Side note. Um, but uh, you know, to a way to connect like that because in my story I shared that I did. I don't remember having um, mentors or those in senior leadership positions that were Native American. And Alaska Native or that they identified as, as such um, and I don't remember seeing anybody like me when I was younger in the, in the Air Force and um, it kind of came like full circle so um, you know I'm, I'm a, currently I'm a senior leader and um, I have a, a young staff sergeant and young young airmen that I mentor and they're like you're the you know one of the first um, Native American mentors and senior list leaders you know that i've come across and at first i was taken back you know i was very humbled by you know what they what they said to me because they said they said more than that but um so i feel like i come full circle and i feel like i can leave the air force better than i found it it's great to be in that position of high responsibility and, and somebody that is as well spoken as you outspoken as you on on being a good leader and being a good role model and an example carries that and carries that really well. Um, I, Thank you. There, there have been a, there has been a time where our country, uh, especially in the media and the portrayal of native Americans didn't carry, didn't give the respect that you carry so well, um, to the native American community. Um, portrayal in the media just was, uh, I want to say cartoonish, uh, but it was worse than that. I think it, it um, perpetuated that generational trauma. Um, do you mind, uh, you're passionate about this subject, and I know this about you, Francis. Would you mind sharing a little bit? Plus, you're like a movie star once removed. Um, can you share a little bit about uh, portrayal in the media and then maybe explain how you're a movie star once removed? Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for bringing that up. Um, so definitely agree there was a time where Native Americans were not portrayed very well in the media um, and um, Native American actors were not used as well, nor were they consulted when making movies about Native Americans. <laughs> um, but very recently, I really do think that, you know, times are they are changing um, because there's recently the, the show called Reservation Dogs or Res Dogs, which is really funny and it's um, heartfelt and um, educational at the same time. But to talk about the movie star once removed, or <laughs> however you put it, yep. um, I, so a unique thing about me is uh, that I do have you know my father's aunts, uncles, cousins, other relatives, different relatives and friends um, that were in the movie Dances with Wolves. And um, I like to share that story too, 
with uh, with others in, in in the Air Force whenever they ask something unique about me. But lately, some people, um, that mainly the younger crowd, don't, doesn't know necessarily what that movie is. So when I have to explain it, um, it's you know then they're like, oh, that's really cool because Dances with Wolves, um, definitely reached out to the Lakota community and used Lakota people as actors and actresses in, in the movie and extras. And then they also um, um, consulted elders and language speakers for um, speaking in, in that movie. And um, one of the elders it was named Doris Liedertard. Francis, that movie has been out since 1990, which is the same year I joined the Air Force. Um, and, and so I get it. A lot of the, a lot of people that are actually already retired weren't in when that thing, uh, when that movie came out. But, uh, but still, you mentioned that that was maybe one of those movies that opened the floodgate on how to consult and uh, get guidance from the Native American community when portraying them in in films and in the media. My question yeah. for you is, you know, here we are. We're thirty two years down the road. Uh, are we getting it better? Are we getting it right when it comes to that? I think we're, I think we're getting it better for sure. Um, just like in the movie Dances with Wolves, I remember um, uh, Mary McDonald, sorry, she's one of the actresses who stands with the fist. And I know um, Kevin Costner and the other actresses um, that, did, that did not know Lakota. Um, that they definitely utilize the language speakers to to speak the words correctly and then here seeing that on the big screen because I, I remember um how packed the movie theater was and um from our indigenous community and i just remember um that you know seeing myself on on the big screen was a big deal yeah getting emotional thinking about it well, well, we'll go to a little comedy. Uh, you mentioned Reservation Dogs, and and here I am. I'm I'm uh, watching Reservation Dogs here, and and uh, picking up on a little bit of the humor. It, it's a different kind of humor than I maybe am used to, uh, than most people are used to in in uh, mass produced comedy shows. But I'm getting it. And when we talked before the podcast, you you actually said you. You kind of have to be there to get it. Um, yes. But that that crew that is making that, that's a lot of really hilarious stuff. And there's a spirit guide that shows up. Uh, he kind of speaks in yeah. a 21st century uh, language, but he's all dressed in uh, what we would consider Native American you know, Plains Indian garb. Uh, that's the best way that I can describe it. The guy is hilarious. Yes. His his name in real life is Dallas Goldtooth. And yeah, he's definitely hilarious. And for sure, like um, native uh, comedy is definitely one that, you know, you have to be there to understand it. And um, specifically on the res, or if you've ever visited the res or grew up on the res, res or the reservation. And um, uh, again, the reservation dogs is definitely heartfelt, funny and educational so um i know we talked about this briefly about the somebody utilizing the recent term 
are recently the term creatures to describe us. Um, and we kind of talk about it briefly, but I know for from my perspective, the indigenous community, you know, we made um, jokes about that, right? It's like, it's kind of like laughter is the best medicine. Sorry, I don't want to say kind of, it is. Laughter is the best medicine. And, you know, if, if anyone other than non-Indigenous were to make fun of that, you know, of course, we would, that wouldn't be right, that wouldn't be appropriate. But for the Indigenous community, it's like, you know, we take that and we turn it into laughter, right? Because um, my grandma used to always tell me this, like, don't stress about things, you know, don't be negative, you know, um, just, you know, be positive and, and all the things and pray for others because if you're negative and constantly stressed out about things, you'll make yourself sick. Um, so I know for sure laughter is medicine and, and Red Dogs is, is one of those shows. If, if um, our, our, your listeners out there haven't seen it yet, definitely watch it, um, especially the one episode where the, um, the ancestors come. That's really a good episode. We're, and I'm getting there, um, working through it. It also deals with some really heavy, heavy stuff um, regarding life on the reservation. So for me, uh, it, it's a good eye opener because I agree with you. Laughter is, is medicine. Um, it'll, it allows people to laugh together so that they can be strong as a group um, and their voices can be, you know, kind of unified in that laughter. Uh, you've talked about um, going through difficult times. Overcoming adversity is what makes you stronger. You said this in an article that you were featured in. Um, more experience to share with those going through hard times. We're still fighting to have a voice in this world and for our voice to be heard and for change to happen and you can be that change. That's your voice, that's your words. Francis, what, what advice do you have for people to help amplify the voice in this world that's needed for positive changes to happen? So thank you for asking that. Um, you know, be, for those non-Indigenous, um, be an ally, you know, um, get educated. I know that there are some things out there that um, most or some people might be ignorant on, means that they just don't know, right? So I still come across that in the military. Um, and and for our Indigenous members or, or our allies, you know, speak up if something doesn't sound right, you know, just you know, just back to our, our, our military training, you know, don't be a bystander, right? So that goes, goes along with, you know, just, just speaking up um, or just asking the question, you know, hey, I, I don't know, you know, I, and I would like to find out more about your culture. Um, can you please, you know, share with me or, or, t- or tell me? Um, and the other thing to this too is that me being Lakota and Northern Arapaho, um, I can only speak on, on um, my experience with my tribe. Um, and I and I don't speak for every Native American or Alaska Native out there, um, but I do know that we all have similarities in our cultures and our beliefs. However, there are some um, some uh, differences. Um, but yes, and for um, the youth out there, and you know, not not just youth, everybody. It's I really do believe that ad- adversity um, helps you with gaining experience and helps you you know, be a quote unquote leader. I mean, I, I put those in quotations because I, I really think like everybody can be a leader no matter your rank, no matter your age, no matter your um, what position you hold, like anybody can be a leader. And I really do think that experience should be um, valued because 
um, you can read you can read all you want in it, you know, in a book, but if, if you gain experience, I think that amplifies it. So I hope that answered your question. Yes, and and thank you so much for uh, for doing so. Um, Native American Heritage Month, it's important. It's important to us as a, as an Air Force and Space Force so that we can recognize the voices uh, and the stories that are out there. Um, what should we consider as we uh, round out Native American Heritage Month? What are the big lessons that you think ought to be carried through for the remainder of the year as we celebrate our diverse force every day? But take this month in particular to uh, recognize our Native American airmen and, and guardians. Right. Um, again, you know, be educated. Um, if you really care for your teammates, um, and that goes for, you know, not only just being Native American, but other cultures. Um, if you really care for your teammates, you know, ask, just ask a question, just be educated and um Specifically, specifically for November, we have Thanksgiving coming up. Not all Native Americans celebrate Thanksgiving. Um, for me personally, my family, yes, we do have a turkey, and we are thankful every day for our family and our friends and the gifts that the Creator um, bestows upon us. Um, but the the real meaning behind Thanksgiving should be also learned. Um, no time in this podcast to... <laughs> To, to give that history lesson, but um, that's also important too. Maybe take the day to learn to learn the real the, the real story behind that. And um, going forward, for the for for the airmen and, and guardians, and uh, you know across other branches, um, when it comes to Native Americans and, and Alaska Natives, um, just know that we are still here because I, I've heard from from actually a handful of others now that. They've had people come up to come up to them in the year 2022, saying they didn't know Native Americans existed anymore. Um, but uh, yeah, so just uh, the the main thing is just you know get educated. Francis, thank you, and thanks for joining me on America's First Warriors. Uh, you've you've got such an an amazing story and such an amazing perspective appreciate the impact that you're continuing to have on our on our military branch in the air and space force and hope you join me uh, next week on our final episode uh, as we'll be joined by jason brown mr jason brown one of the many key contributors to the mission as a civilian in our air and space force francis thank you again for taking the time and, and having this conversation thank you and i appreciate it America's First Warriors, Stories of Today's Airmen and Guardians, was sponsored by the Indigenous Nations Equality Team, an air and space force barrier analysis working group. Background research and subject exploration was accomplished by Master Sergeant Francis Degree, Buckley Space Force Base, and the 133rd Airlift Wing's podcast development team. Special thanks to Master Sergeant Lacey Roberts for her technical and cultural guidance and to Ms. Amy Lovegren of the 133rd Airlift Wing's Public Affairs team for her production expertise. Again, I've been your host, Chief Master Sergeant Mark Lightbold. <laughs>